We return to our July 30th pre-recorded interview with Glenn Ford as he speaks on neoliberalism and the outsourcing of jobs. The grand design is to reduce all of the globe's working population, including uh, those in the rich countries, to a permanent state of precarity uh, so that they would be uh, desperate enough to accept any kind of job at any wage under any conditions. But to make that uh, possible, you have to pull out all of the social supports that give people the option not to take a job. And so you do as Clinton did and abolish welfare as we knew it in 1994. And you steadily chip away at food stamps, uh, all the supports that gives people at least, that buys people time so that they consider uh, can consider not taking this gig uh, job and, and, and waiting till a better one uh, comes along. That, that's also one of the reasons uh, that big corporations that pay huge amounts of money to private insurance companies for health coverage for their employers still oppose Medicare for all. Uh, the point here, and, and in fact, the, the, the fact that U.S. Uh, corporations uh, have to pay for uh, medical coverage for their employees, the fact that that puts them at a disadvantage with foreign uh, competitors uh, still is not a good enough reason for these heads of industry to support Medicare for all, because they too are in line with the race to the bottom that neoliberalism really is, the steady wearing away of the options that workers have uh, to not take that gig job. So even even those corporations uh, oppose Medicare for all because that would uh, cut the tie between a job and health care and give workers the option to pass up employment uh, of insufficient salary and, and bad conditions. So yeah. that's what they're trying to do. That's, right. that's, the, that's the general uh, thrust of neoliberalism. It's a race to the bottom uh, to create a conditions of permanent precarity for the vast majority of working people all over the world. Yeah, it sounds like what you're saying is that anything that inhibits the rate of profit becomes scrutinized with the tendency to downsize that or eliminate that. So whether it's safety conditions for workers, that costs money. So, you know, get rid of that. You know, whether it's the health insurance, those types of things. We talked about at the introduction of this of this uh, show, we talked about how President Obama was, he, he was bragging about the 14 million jobs that he created, but 10, over 10 million of them were uh, part-time, no-benefited jobs. Um, and, and so he was able to, with this kind of image-making, say, look, uh, unemployment's down, you know, but, but the, the number of people that have uh, jobs that uh, pay poverty wages is way, way up. Uh, so this whole transfer of wealth, it's interesting that uh, I don't have the statistics right in front of me, but from an earlier show, we documented how over the Obama years, many of the years, it was like the middle class lost considerable wealth to the top percent, while the bottom 10 percent stayed relatively stable in poverty. <laughs> so what, the, end, the end result was you were able to satiate the greed of this top 1 percent by getting increased revenues, but basically you were decimating the middle class, uh, which is... Uh, precisely what what was occurring, and we you know we 
we talked about this before the break, about how all of the major indices were indicating since the 1800s, we have not had a higher rate of people moving back in with their parents. This guy, I don't know if you're familiar with Ray Dalio. He's a fairly progressive hedge fund billionaire that was been arguing that capitalism needs urgent reform because he sees it cutting its own throat, so to speak. He said since 1980, the percentage of children who grew up to earn more than their parents has fallen to 50% from 90% in 1970, and that the wealth gap is at its widest point since the Great Depression, with the 1% owning more than the bottom 90% combined. And the most people in the bottom 60% are poor, and about 40% of all Americans would struggle to raise $400 in the event of an emergency. Uh, this is according to a Federal Reserve study and a, and a piece done in Market Watch back in April 15th of 2019. Well, I think the COVID virus qualifies as an emergency. And I guess that's what I wanted to ask you to elaborate a little bit more on was the fact that on top of a downtrending quality of life for the majority population before the COVID deal, in your piece, you highlight what's been reported. It's not, it shouldn't be new news, but just this outrageous differential in African-American and, and Hispanic-Americans dying at four to five times greater rates than whites. You also indicated that the lockdown and this, this, this kind of juxtaposition about the economy versus the health is a remarkable type of deal that doesn't get any airtime that you said that uh, the geographically uneven lockdown succeeded only in creating the Great Depression levels of unemployment without halting the spread of the disease. So the character and the nature of this economic system is a system that apparently just can't do the job. You know, as an African-American and someone that's really in tune and keeps track of the quality of life issues connected to all Americans, but particularly African-Americans, what has this COVID virus taught you? Well, but there is no national health system. We learned that quite quickly. But that's not just one fact of many. Uh, it's 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 an essential part of the crisis of legitimacy that set in uh, became uh, very apparent in the country as soon as as COVID took hold. That is a country that cannot. Uh, protect its population uh, from a contagious disease is not really a legitimate government. And I think that that had a great deal, that 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 general pall hanging over the system uh, as a whole, that realization, that eureka moment uh, that went off in tens of millions of people's heads that the government was incapable and illegitimate. I think that had a lot to do with the huge size of the uh, protests that consumed the country mm-hmm. for the whole month of June and are, and are continuing today. Mm-hmm. The crises of illegitimacy are uh, crucial because, you know, in the course of things, conditions can get worse and worse and worse, and that does not uh, necessarily uh, generate a real opposition. But when more and more people come to the conclusion that the rulers not only have no clothes, uh, but they are unfit to rule, uh, then you are talking about something that could be approaching a revolutionary uh, situation and generating mass action in opposition to the regime and not just complaining about mistakes by the regime. That's a, that's a real difference there. 
Yeah, you're in your article where you state that you say a state that cannot safeguard the lives of its citizens has failed a basic test of legitimacy. You hear all of these flowery words during the campaign season by Biden, you know, the character of our nation. And well, that is the character of our nation, isn't it? The character is, is that we're not taking care of the basic needs of our people. You, you write in your article as clear as can be written that quote. And, and what you've been noting is that mm-hmm. the nation has not been taking care of the basic needs of the majority of its people for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, those statistics that you uh, quote, they are treated by lots of folks on the left as tragedies. But they're not seen as tragedies by the lords of capital, the people that have uh, worked real hard to impose those conditions. The precarity uh, that you were talking about, that that is where most uh, households uh, don't have enough money to cover a $500 uh, emergency, uh, that's precarity. And that is exactly what the lords of capital want to impose on the broad masses of people. That is what neoliberalism is about. That is what the corporate globalism uh, is about. That is the desired result. We see it as a tragedy. We see it as pain and suffering. Liberals see it as something that should be corrected within the system. But the people who run the system don't see it as as something that needs correction. Uh, that, That is they see it as a policy that is going, uh, that is progressing according to plan. Everybody, they want everybody to be desperate uh, to accept that gig, non-job job. Well, exactly, because they make the money off of that unpaid labor time, right? And so if people aren't going to work, there ain't a lot of unpaid labor time because nobody's working. So that hurts. That, so therefore, who gets put in harm's way? I think the failure of U.S. rulers to protect the population from a contagious disease that killed less than 5,000 people in China. These, again, are your words from your article. It's country of origin with a population of 1.4 billion. It basically just speaks to the priority or the lack of priority or the priority of capital over humanity, which is the code name for neoliberalism, as much as I can, I, you know, I can tell here. But to fight this contagious, this highly contagious disease, one would have to have a national health system. But if one had a national health system, uh, that being a system that takes care of the day-to-day, long- and short-term health needs of uh, the people, uh, that would have to be a socialized system, uh, because you can't have a national system that is in private hands. Private private corporations do not obey federal or government mandates. That's why they're private. And if you had a, a working, socialized public health system, then that would be a huge impediment something that the people could fall back on, something they could count on whether they had a job or not, that would be a huge impediment to the neoliberal race-to-the-bottom goal of reducing everyone to a permanent state of precarity. So you can't have a national health system and neoliberalism at the same time. And that means that you can't have late-stage capitalism and the national health system at the same time, which means if you, need, if you want a national health care system, then you have to get rid of capital. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, the other wheel on this that engages with the things you've been talking about 
has to do with the incarceration rates because this is where traditionally these, these viral diseases and contagions are so dangerous. And yet we've got, uh, you know, a quarter of, of the world's populated incarcerated here. And so I think that also really speaks to the dire, you know, the dire situation here. I think people are so afraid of words, whether it's socialism or any other ism type word. But at the end of the day, when they're coming home or not coming home and their kids, they can't feed their kids, just like in the Depression or whatever, that, that seems to be the thing that kind of knifes and cuts through all of the empty rhetoric. And I'm just wondering what you see in the future with respect to the unfolding of the events that are in front of us. I mean, not so much who's going to win the presidential election, but you have with this particular election coming up, you have Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. And it seems like everyone is so fixated on these foreign interventions that were involved in, which is another part of this neoliberalism, it's like an unsatiable appetite. And so it's not only got to create more markets, it's got to destroy all examples along the way in order to be able to position itself as a more viable alternative because there's nothing left, it seems like. What do you see as the future, whether Trump or whether Joe Biden wins? What are the differences and similarities and outcomes in your mind? Well, Joe Biden and Donald Trump are both neoliberals. And so any any retreat from the race to the bottom or endless war, and they're, they're both uh, inseparable uh, twin pillars of uh, neoliberalism, there will be none as long as there is a Republican and Democratic uh, duopoly dominating the electoral politics in the United States. When people like me uh, say there isn't a dime's worth of difference between the two, uh, we're speaking of both of those corporate duopoly, both of those corporate parties being absolutely wedded to the race to the bottom and endless war. And those, of course, are the, the biggest issues of our time. Well, what the Democratic Party does uh, in order to, as a vote-gathering mechanism, is offer to black folks and brown folks to diversify this evil system that we're under, uh, to make the system, uh, in terms of its, its visible representatives, a rainbow, while uh, below it's the same hell that's being progressively imposed on more and, and more people. So in that kind of sense, if there's a dime's worth of difference, it is that uh, there'll be black faces and, and brown faces in high places uh, of, of this illegitimate government. Yeah. And that ain't nothing to fight for. That is something to resist. And so where do you see, it seems like there's a real opportunity to point out so many of these contradictions that we have touched on and others have as to the unlivable conditions for increasingly greater plurality of the majority interests in our country and such. So where do you see, my last question for you, the Black Lives Matter, the disposition of improving, of dismantling racism and where this path is, is, uh, is taking us. It seems like there's been a fairly successful ability to stay focused on the conditions that have been created of inequality rather than looking at the real causes. The great question in terms of Black Lives Matter, and, and we're using this term Black Lives Matter uh, <laughs> in the way that the term civil rights was used in the 1960s. Uh, I remember very well that there came a point in the 60s uh, where corporate media 
was calling every black person uh, who had something to say a civil rights leader, whether they had uh, an organization uh, or not, or whether that organization was primarily uh, concerned uh, with civil rights or not. Civil rights just became the blanket term for black people talking politics. And <laughs> similarly, uh, Black Lives Matter is, is, is the way uh, everybody, all, all the demonstrations uh, that we saw involving millions of people, some of them overwhelmingly white, they were all called Black Lives Matter demonstrations. There were only 14 uh, chapters of the Black Lives Matter actual organization in the country. Only one of those chapters is in uh, a southern state in Tennessee. All the rest are, are in the north. Many big cities, most big cities, don't have a chapter. So these demonstrations uh, that we saw in every city, in every state, were not Black Lives Matter organization demonstrations, but they were inspired uh, by Black Lives Matter demonstrations and the general sentiment that Black Lives should matter and the general revulsion at the behavior of, of U.S. police. So, so that, uh, I, I wanted to say all that uh, just to make it clear that there is no Black Lives Matter high uh, command uh, with tentacles throughout the United States. Mm. There is an organization with 14 chapters in some cities. So how serious do you think the possibility is there to eliminate or grossly dismantle racism from the conditions that are, that are presently facing us? It seems like this has really been a, an opportunity that if the right information is out there and people are slowly being made aware of it, even though really the major networks, they don't really cover the issues of that nature that we've been talking about, these, these statistical quality of life, you know, the decimation of, of those types of standards for the American public and stuff. It's just a matter of, of anti-Trump versus pro-Trump deal, which kind of distracts us from the real attention. What what would be the best strategy, you think, to to maximize the chance that people will fundamentally start perhaps looking at the real problem? Well, the, the, the demonstrations, that, that hell of a month, June, was mostly about the police. So let's, let's focus on that. The point is, how does one rein in or combat the power of the police? Well, when we're, when we're talking about the power of the police, we're talking about the coercive organ of the state. The police are not a state unto themselves. They serve a government. They're the arm of the government that has the power to lock you up has the power to kill you under certain circumstances. So what is the status of, of, that, of that movement? Uh, I think it's a little bit confusing, and that the confuse, confusion comes from a lack of, of unity around whether we will just defund the police uh, or bring those police under the democratic control of the people uh, that they patrol. And these, these, are, these are basic questions. We, of course, at Black Agenda Report, support all demands to defund the police. We wish they, they would be defunded out of existence, although that's impossible while you still have a capitalist state. But as much defunding as, as we can get, uh, we'll take. Uh, but a police force that is half of the size, a New York City police force that instead of being close to 40,000 was uh, just 20,000, that's about two army divisions, uh, would still be a an occupation uh, army, a hostile force in black communities, uh, even if it was only at half strength. Uh, that doesn't change the 
nature of the police. It doesn't change the relationship between the police and the community. It does not democratize the situation. And I'm very disappointed uh, that some Black Lives Matter chapters, it appears to be most of them, have not come out for community control of the police as well as defunding of the police. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is indicative of the influence of Alicia Garza, who was one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter logo and, uh, and hashtag, who clearly has become a Democratic Party operative. She intervened in the Democratic primaries on the side of Warren and uh, against uh, Bernie Sanders, which shows that she's now a player. And community control of the police is anathema uh, to the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I believe uh, that Garza uses her a very strong influence in Black Lives Matter chapters to keep people talking about defunding of the police and the transferring of the funds that are spent or taken from the police to social service organizations. But we think that what folks should be advocating is not only community control of the police, but also community control of those social service organizations that are supposed to be serving the people, community control of the schools. These social service organizations uh, and the welfare organizations we used to have uh, were not friends of their clients. In many ways, they were used as tools of control and oppression of their client uh, population. So we need community control of all the institutions that are important uh, to the people. And, and that's a democratic position. And I would hope that advocates of community control of the police would expand uh, their argument uh, to other institutions and uh, start talking a broader kind of democracy. That's one of the ways we get to socialism. I was also just wanted to end the show with the status of being an African-American in this country. Returning to the original theme is there was a 2011 study out of North Carolina. That we detailed earlier in the show. The lead author of the study was Dr. David Rosen. And another one a few years before that, that it was remarkable to me that it showed that the life expectancy of black males was longer if you were in prison than, than not. When comparing white prisoners and black inmates, they found that the white prisoners died of cardiovascular diseases as often as expected in jail and died of cancer slightly more than non-prisoners. Black inmates, by contrast, were between 30 and 40 percent less likely to die of those causes than those who were not incarcerated. They were also less likely to die of diabetes, alcohol and drug-related causes, airway diseases, accidents, suicide, and murder than black men not in prison. And again, this is an article written by Ginevra Pittman in Reuters Health Thursday, July 14th, 2011, called Black Men Survive Longer in Prison Than Out. <laughs> so that kind of tells you how well we're taking care of our uh, brothers and sister citizens in this country. Listen, we are out of time. I think what you just explained at the end there is what democracy really looks like. It's that's when the community of people take responsibility in their neighborhoods and those types of things to do what, whether it's the policing or whether it's the organizing of schools. And and hopefully that will start becoming more of a reality. More and more people are not even able to go to school right now. So it's already probably starting to happen, at least in the homes. And maybe it's not a big step from there. 
Listen, if you are interested, I want to just share that we've been speaking with the esteemed executive editor of Black Agenda Report, who has a generational overview of black studies in the United States, but also in humanities studies in the United States. And you can access his work and others of his team at the Black Agenda Report by Googling Black Agenda Report. Mr. Ford, thank you so much for your time and your efforts, and we'll be looking forward to continuing to follow your work. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. All right, friend. Thank you. Okay, so please stay tuned and turn on over to our live streaming at koop.org if you're not already there for Nobody's Happy Hour with Tim. We take you out as we do each Monday night with Land of Naivety. Thank you.